Welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary Podcast. Today we're starting a brand new series called The Abundant Community. Throughout this series, we will explore justice through generosity. Today, Pastor Jason Coker kicks off our brand new series with a teaching based on Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, titled Lost, Starving, and Exhausted. If you remember uh, 1999, or not, that's quite a while ago now, uh, 20 years ago. 1999, Janelle and I were youth leaders in a small church in Park City, Utah, and there was only one thing that everybody was talking about in 1999. If you were alive at that time, you'll remember what it was. It was this idea that when the clocks turned to the year 2000, that all of the computers in the world were going to suddenly glitch and shut down because they couldn't handle the fact that it was like, you know, a year that had zeros on it, like computers hadn't been programmed to handle that incredible conundrum. And that all the computers were going to shut down because the world was run on Microsoft, by the way. All the the world's computers were going to shut down. That's a joke for those of you Apple fans out there. All the computers in the world were going to shut down and civilization was going to come to a screeching halt. There was even a name for this. It was, say it with me, Y2K. Y2K was a fun year, wasn't it? Like we were all sort of flirting with the end of the world, you know, it was a... It was a great time to be an apocalyptic preacher. You know, you could talk about Jesus coming back and bringing a little bit more money that way. There's all kinds of creative ways in religion to raise money. So Y2K was a tough time. There were people in our church. We were a very sort of uh, fundamentalist-oriented Pentecostal church that we were in in Park City. And so that meant, in my sort of estimation, that we were pretty susceptible to kind of conspiracy-oriented thinking. And so we were kind of like spiritual survivalists. And some of us were actual survivalists. Like we had rooms in our houses for the extra food and grain and, and you know, stuff that we would eat and, you know, live on after Y2K like collapsed all of civilization. That's the backstory to what I'm about to tell you, right? Y2K, just keep Y2K there in the back of your head. And right now you're thinking, oh, what was I doing during Y2K? Well, what Janelle and I were doing during Y2K was we were youth pastors on staff at a small church there. And uh, we were, Y2K or not, we were already struggling because we weren't getting paid nearly enough. Some of you know exactly what that's like. And so we were really struggling and actually had just bought a house, our first house that we actually bought. We scraped together everything we could to buy this house. You know, we're told like, this is the American dream. It's what you do. We believe that. We bought the house. And the next thing you know, like we couldn't eat. Like we did not have enough money to make it. We were really struggling and had like three kids, actually four kids, because we had one of my cousins that we had semi-adopted, right? So we had four kids and we were barely making ends meet. Y2K came. Lo and behold, the end of the world didn't happen, uh, but it felt like the end of the world in our home. Um, and maybe, you know, I say that sort of jokingly, but, but maybe you know what it's like to not know if you're going to be able to buy groceries this week or pay your rent. Um, maybe you know what it's like to have to make a decision between the electric bill and food to pay your children. Now, Janelle and I have always been super scrappy, and we've worked as many jobs as we have to, and even now, you know, between the two of us, I think we have five jobs, and so we're pretty resilient, but we reached a point right after Y2K where we really looked at each other and thought, I don't know that we're going to make it. I don't know that this is going to happen. 
And out of the blue, one day, we get a call from a woman in our church who was a single mother, whose husband had recently left her, and they had stored all kinds of stuff for Y2K. And she called us up and she said, hey, I just feel like the Lord has asked me to share some of this with you guys. And so she drove up one day, all by herself with her kid in the car, and she opened up her trunk, which was just full of groceries, and we carried those groceries into our house, and Janelle and I made it to the next paycheck. The entire time, very cognizant, very aware of the fact that she really could not afford to share what she shared with us. Now, what I'm going to suggest to you today is that that is what we're reading about in Exodus chapter 16. What's happening in Exodus chapter 16 is that the people of God are being called to act like the people of God by being a different kind of community in a world that is extraordinarily difficult and desperate and sometimes full of hopelessness. So a couple things that I just want to suggest to you today from this passage. The first is that uh, one of the problems with Exodus chapter 16 is that there's this amazing miracle happening in it. And I know that doesn't seem like it should be a problem, but one of the troubles I have with Exodus 16 is that these big spectacular miracles very often blind us to the real miracle that's happening in the passage. So Exodus 16 has this vivid image of bread coming down from heaven and the people of God going out and just like gathering the bread so that they have enough to eat. And if you're anything like I was when I was a child, you're thinking to yourself, that's amazing. How come it doesn't rain bread anymore? And we get sort of locked into reading the Bible that way, I think, at a pretty early age. We put such an emphasis on the miracles that happen that supposedly prove that God is God, that those miracles blind us to the real miracle that's occurring. And just as evidence of this, you know, for the past couple of millennia now, there have been different factions in Judaism and Christianity who have argued endlessly about what it is that's actually going on in Exodus chapter 16. Uh, part of the problem is that if you go into the Middle East now, you will find a certain plant in the Middle East, it's called Haloxylon salicornicum. How's that? Say that 10 times. Haloxylon salicornicum, right? It's a little green shrub that grows abundantly in the Middle East. It's everywhere you go. And even now, if you go out in the middle of the desert and you look for this plant, you will find on this green shrub, the stems of the green shrub, little white dots every morning. Those little white dots are actually the secretions of insects who live in the desert. Secretions is a fancy way of saying something that, you know, doesn't sound very appetizing. But the beauty of these secretions is that they're full of sugar and calories. And if you take them, you gather them, and you purify them, and you dry them out, you can turn them into a kind of confectioner's sugar. And even to this day, if you visit the Middle East, you will find little white cakes made out of this substance that sometimes have like nuts and fruit in them. They're a kind of dessert. Tradition tells us that this is what the Jews ate in the desert when they were wandering around in the wilderness. You can still eat it today. 
And so, of course, there are people on either side of this debate. There are those who would say, no, 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 the bread that rained down from heaven were these little secretions that can be found on shrubs all over the Middle East. People even make it today. That's exactly how people sort of subsisted. The ancient Hebrews subsisted in the desert. And there are others that say, no, 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 that's blasphemy because it takes away from the idea that the word says that actual brain or bread came down from heaven to sustain God's people. And what you're doing when you say that it is this, this little uh, secretion on this plant is you are nullifying the power of God, the idea that there's a miracle happening there. Not surprising to many of you, I just think both of those folks get it wrong. Because I don't think this passage is about the miracle of the bread that comes down from heaven. I think Exodus 16 is about our lives. Every culture has folk tales that relate the idea that food sometimes magically appears to people who act in certain ways, who behave in certain ways. And usually those folks are people who are starving, hungry, desperate, and maybe even lost. This is actually a pretty familiar story. And we often feel hungry, desperate, and lost in our lives every day, don't we? Exodus 16 isn't about whether or not actual bread fell from heaven. I have no trouble believing that it did, and I also don't particularly care if it didn't. What's interesting to me about Exodus 16 is that it teaches us something about how God wants us to be in relationship with God and with each other when we are people who end up lost and desperate and hungry and starving. Because isn't this how we act? Like in your life, when you go from one success and then you end up in your life feeling frustrated and desperate and hungry and lost all over again. And isn't that how life works, right? Just when you get things worked out, just when you feel like you've been liberated from bondage, just when you feel like God has delivered you from one particular failure, the next thing you know, there's a whole nother set of troubles in front of you, right? Suddenly you can't pay your bills, you can't feed your kids, you can't hold down that job, you can't keep that relationship with that person that you've been sowing into for so long, you can't stay married to that god-awful person anymore. Suddenly life is full of failure and frustration and struggle all over again, and when that happens, when we find ourselves lost in the wilderness... The way that we react is just the same way that the Hebrews do in Exodus 16. We complain. We get angry. Because when we're desperate, we're fearful. We're afraid that we're not going to make it. We're, we're afraid that we're not enough. We're afraid that we're going to fail our spouse or our children or our loved ones or our church or our business or Whoever it might be, we are desperately afraid that we aren't going to make it anymore. And when we're afraid, we generally get angry. And when we get angry, we generally blame somebody else. Our lives are full of Moseses and Aaron's that we point our finger to and say, you know, if it wasn't for you, if I hadn't done this because you talked me into it, everything would be just fine. This is what fear and anxiety and frustration looks like in people. It looks just like the Hebrews in Exodus chapter 16. And so this passage is really not about the miracle in the desert. 
that we see when we imagine bread falling down from heaven. This passage is about the lives that we live every single day and the profound lessons that God has for us in the midst of it. There are three profound lessons that I think we have to learn from this particular passage. And the first is this. Number one, God has provided enough. God has provided enough. I I know it's hard. I've been there more than once. But I can tell you from personal experience that this word is true, that no matter how dark the desert appears to be in the middle of the night when you can't see where you're going, no matter how dry and hot it is in the middle of the day when you're starving and thirsty and hungry, no matter how difficult things get in life, if you have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, God has provided enough. but it can be hard to see because God's provision for enough sometimes looks different than we expect. If you've been raised to eat hot pots of meat in Egypt, then you don't have eyes to see the manna that's clinging to the stem of a brush in the middle of the desert. But it's there. God has provided enough. Now, We could spend all day interrogating ourselves and asking ourselves, do we really believe that God is good enough, that God has poured out enough to meet all of our needs? And I would suggest to you that the degree to which you are angry and frustrated and anxious is the degree to which you don't really believe that God is good. And I don't mean that as an accusation. Every other day, I don't believe it either. Today, I believe it. Check with me tomorrow. I might be a little cranky. Probably depends on whether or not I had breakfast that day. But God has provided enough for all of us. The second profound lesson that I get out of this is that we have to work for it. Now, I know some of you were raised like in a reformed setting and you had grace drilled into you and when I say to you that we have to work for it something like raises your hackles so I want you to hear me very clearly if at all possible I'm not saying that you have to earn what God gives you I am saying you have to go out and work for it though for God's people it wasn't enough that the bread rained down from heaven in Exodus 16 God had instructions for them, and those instructions were to go out and to gather as much as they needed. They had to get up every day and go out and gather the good gifts of God. If you aren't willing to get up every day and go out and to gather the good things that God has sent into your life, then chances are you will starve. We all have to work for it. This is not so scandalous if you think about it. If if any of you have a garden in your backyard, you know you have to work for the tomatoes. You don't have to work for the weeds. The weeds grow up all on their own. But man, you got to work for those tomatoes. You got to plant those seeds. You got to till that soil. You got to make sure that there's the right amount of fertilizer in there. You got to water it. You got to prune them. 
You got to pull those weeds and then raise up. You got to kill those gophers. Don't even get me started about the gophers. <laughs> you could just let it go and see what happens. And you know, sometimes that works out. But in the long run, it never does. You're going to have to cultivate the good things that God has sent you in order to get the most out of it that you can. And Exodus 16 is a picture of that. The third thing that I notice in this that's uh, really important, that speaks to me deeply, uh, maybe it speaks to you, is uh, not only is there enough and not only do we have to work for it, but we also have to cooperate. And I've noticed that the first thing that tends to go when we feel like we're starving and desperate and we aren't going to make it, the first thing that goes out the window is our cooperation with each other. Because I got to take care of my own. I'm really sorry about you. I'm really sorry about your kids. I'm really sorry about your rent or your electric bill, but I've got to take care of me and my family. There's a word for this. It's competition. And don't even get me started about how in America we've turned competition into a virtue. Competition is fun. We had one yesterday. But competition is a lousy way to run a society. God's instructions are that we not only go out and we gather, but that we gather enough for us and not too much. We gather enough for us and not too little. We gather whatever it is that God has sent out and we work with each other to make sure that there really is enough for everybody. That requires cooperation. And this is, I think, what God meant when he said, I want to test my people to see if they will follow my instructions. You have 400,000 people, give or take, wandering around in the wilderness starving and hungry and God's solution to that is not just to send bread from heaven his solution is to give them instructions so that they will work together to make sure everybody has what they need you don't just have to work for it you have to cooperate you have to look out for your neighbor you have to make sure that somebody didn't gather too little or that somebody didn't gather too much. Here's an interesting thing about this third lesson that we have to cooperate. The third lesson comes with both a curse and a blessing. Because in this story, of course, it says, if you gather too much and you try to store it up, that is, if you try to hoard a bunch of manna, it only lasts a day and it will begin to rot and be filled with worms is the way this story is told. And isn't it true that if you become a hoarder, that if you succumb to greed, if you try to have too much, that that will begin to rot you from the inside out? That's what greed does. When you try to gather too much, it begins to go bad. But there's a blessing that comes with this too, and the blessing is this that if you gather according to God's instructions, there is rest for you. Because on the sixth day, you can gather twice as much, and on the seventh day, you can rest. And ultimately, that's what this passage is really about. This passage is about rest. 
Because I don't know about you, but I find that I live every day a kind of existence that says I have to get up every day and hustle a little bit better than you, a little bit faster than you, work a little bit harder than you so that I can get ahead. I get up every day and I'm susceptible to the lie that in order for me to be good and right and safe, that I have to compete and be better. And that is exhausting. It's exhausting. We live in a world of exhaustion. And the people who are the most exhausted, the most burned out, the least happy are usually those who have the most. You know that in any given, we actually measure happiness now in societies. And in the United States, there are two groups of people who are the least happy. The first group are the poorest of the poor. Because, you know, it turns out that if you can't eat on any given day, you're, you're pretty unhappy about that. And we see that all over the place. We see that more now than ever, by the way. On any given day in Oceanside, I can drive down Oceanside Boulevard or Coast Highway, and the sides of the road are just littered with the poorest of the poor. Um, and this congregation works hard to try to relieve that pressure, but it is impossible to be happy and fulfilled if every single day you don't know if you're going to have enough to eat. The second group of the least happy people in the United States, however, perhaps surprisingly, are the richest of the rich. Because it turns out that the only thing more miserable than being genuinely poor is being desperately wealthy. Because that's not enough. God doesn't just call us to succeed. God calls us into community. And that's what we have a picture of in this passage. It's a picture of God's alternative community. That's what we're called to be as a church. We're called to be people who recognize God's good gifts, who gather God's good gifts, and who make sure that everybody around us in our midst has what they need. That's what we're doing here. Now, if you're cynical like me, and if I were sitting in those pews, I would be thinking, oh, this is just Pastor Jason's way of asking us to give money. But it's not. It's my way of asking you to give more of everything. It's not just about money. It's about your money. It's about your time. It's about your talent. It's about your, your whatever grace God has poured out in your lives. It's my job to call you to pour that into this community, not into my pocket, into this community so that we can bring God's blessing and goodness to those who need it. That's what we try to do here. The good news is that I'm not calling you to be more exhausted. I'm not calling you to be more busy. I'm not calling you to give money to the church so that you can't pay your electric bill. 
I'm just calling you to share what God has given you so that none of us has to be exhausted. So that we can all enter into the Sabbath rest that can only come if we are a true community together. That's what people in this world want. They want to stop spinning their wheels. They want to stop feeling like they have to compete all the time. We're supposed to be a community that does that by working together. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this place. We thank you for your words that challenge us to live differently in the midst of desperation, to live abundantly in the midst of scarcity, to share with each other so that we can bring hope to people who are hopeless and in need. We ask God that you would give us the faith and the courage to pour into a genuine community of people who are able and willing to share with each other so that we can all enjoy the rest, the Sabbath rest of your kingdom. God, we confess that that is hard, that our hearts are constantly calling us to protect what we have and to store up more so that we don't have to be afraid of the future. But God, I just pray that you would give us the courage to believe that you really have provided enough. So that our act of giving to the poor, our act of sharing with each other, our act of pitching in our gifts, our graces, our act of rolling up our sleeves and doing our part will genuinely be an act of rest. We could enter into the goodness of your kingdom. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you just stand with me and let's sing one last time today?